Hello everyone, this is um, Claudia Morgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire show. And uh, my guest today is uh, Frederick Lerman. He's the founder of the Nomad University and an accomplished musician. He plays the cello and the guitar. He also studied Japanese music with Koto Master, Shiniki Yuze, and also raga singing with the great North Indian vocalist Pandit Pranath. For nine years, he was a senior student of the Tai Chi master Chang Mang Ching and founded several permanent schools of Tai Chi Chuan in major U.S. cities, including a special Tai Chi program at Naropa Institute. He has designed programs and taught jointly with many leading thinkers, among whom are Marilyn Ferguson, Jose Arguelles, Barbara Marx Hubbard, Barbara De Angelis, Peter Russell, Robert Sheldrake, Terence McKenna, and Lynn Twist. Frederick is also the author of several books, from which I'll mention one, The Sacred Landscape. Uh, Frederick, we met through our online shamanic uh, course studying the insights of indigenous people all over the world. Um, the first time we connected in the private uh, chat, we talked for close to two hours. Um, you have a fascinating life, I met amazing people, and each time we talk on Monday nights, I listen to a new story. Uh, when did you know that there is more to life than the struggle for existence and spirituality could be an option? I would say that in some sense I always knew, but I didn't know that I knew. Uh, I had a different side to my mind which was very logical and demanded proof and was systematic. Not in a mathematical way, but in a, in a language way. Did this make sense? Did I understand it the same as the person uh, listening would understand it? Or if not, I would have to explain it a little more clearly. So uh, I, I think that this all came to a certain point when I was going through high school and I had the sense that, you know, I was somewhat different from everybody else. And so I decided I must be crazy because they all seem to be happy. <laughs> but by the time I got to the end of high school, before graduating, I found that they were all coming to me for advice because they were not so happy. And uh, they asked me questions about relationships and things which I shouldn't really have known about so much. But I always gave them an answer which made them feel like their problem was now clearer to them. And when the problem becomes clear, then the solution becomes clear. So in any case, uh, I, I did not evaluate or think of myself as being a person who had any kind of particular special spiritual connection. Uh, but this gradually changed over the next 10, 15 years until finally I began to notice that the things in my life that I had thought were coincidences were perhaps not quite so random and that there was a plan and there was a kind of a map which was emerging in my life. And I decided to test it out, to experiment with it. And instead of saying, well, I don't believe that, I would experiment with believing it and see what happened. And I found that the moment I did this, and it was also because of a, a woman that I was in a relationship who kind of encouraged this with me because she was very mystical. I decided to see, try to see things her way. And, uh, I liked what I saw and I said, well, this is much better. Why should I go back to the old way of thinking about things as being just exactly what they look like? 
rather than as what they represent or what they communicate. So I began to look at the world and look through the world into some other area, uh, non-dimensional area where there was a new level of information. And over the many decades since then, uh, I never went back. I just kept going and still kept my skepticism so that I didn't accept or believe everything actually without testing it. But if I tested it and found that it made an improvement, then I would keep it. So that's the, the short answer to a very, very long story. I'm writing actually a book about my own process <clears throat> with writing the sacred landscape and how that came about. And uh, all of it is part of one long story yes. involves my curiosity about everything. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned several times that your life has been an experiment and uh, it was quite interesting and took you in different uh, directions. So my next question is about uh, the sacred landscapes. How did you come about writing the book? What you know inspired you? And I know it's an interesting story. Well, it's an interesting story and it's a very long story, so I won't try to tell you the whole thing. But it, it certainly began totally unconsciously. I grew up in New York City, so I was very familiar with New York and felt like that was a natural place to be. Now I recognize that it's not so natural. I still feel comfortable there when I visit and I can operate without anxiety in New York. But it is a very extreme environment, as anyone knows who's been there. And... Uh, there was a strange thing that happened to me one day when I was, I was no longer living in New York, but I would visit more frequently because my uh, brother still lives there and I uh, have a lot of friends in New York and I was working there occasionally. So I was in New York City. I had just come from the Metropolitan Museum to see the new exhibits there. And I was walking close to where I went to high school down Madison Avenue on my way to my next uh, appointment. And I had a habit while walking down on any avenue, and this is a childhood habit, to look in all the windows as I walked by just to see if anything looked interesting, and then I would stop and look at it. So I had been walking for three or four blocks very fast, and I went by the next window, and I, it was an antique store, American Antiques, and there was nothing particularly that I was looking for and nothing particular there that caught my attention, but when I got to the end of the window, walking rapidly, I suddenly stopped almost as if I had walked into a wall, an invisible wall on the sidewalk. And I said, why did I stop? And then I said, well, let me keep walking. And I, I could not keep walking. The wall was still there, even though other people were walking right through it. So I said, okay, here's one of those strange moments. So I turned around and I said, let me look in the window and see if there's anything I'm supposed to notice there. And I looked very carefully and no, there wasn't anything. And so I started to walk again and then the wall was still there. I, I knew I could push through it, but I knew I, I really had to focus myself to do that. And uh, so I said, well, I am really losing my mind, I guess. So let me go back and look again. And uh, I saw something that I hadn't noticed the first two times, which was a small painting. And it looked like a, uh, an, orange, an orange area in the middle. And I mean, the painting was about the size of my laptop screen right now, 13 inches or so. And it was an oil painting. So there was this orange area in the middle and the top was a dark, dark blue. And the bottom was a, a blue black or a brownish black. 
So we had the brown and black, and we had the blue on the top, and in the middle, this ball of orange. Yes. And I looked at it, and I, I couldn't really make out why it was so fascinating to me, because it looked like a, uh, an abstract expressionist painting from 1930 out of Germany or somewhere. It was not like anything else I'd seen in quite a while. But it didn't have any, any, anything I could identify in it. So I went in and I, I asked the, the director of the art gallery, uh, you know, what was this painting in the window? And he said, which one? And I pointed to the back of it because we were inside the shop. And he said, oh, uh, that's, that's a, uh, an American painter uh, from the 1880s, 1890s. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's an oil painting. And, uh, and I said, well, how much is it? And he said, it's uh, $7,000. Wow. <clears throat> this, was, this was back around 19, uh, 1980, right? So that was uh, not enough. It was a lot of money for me, and I had no place to put it. And, and so I, I said, hmm, well. So I went out, and I looked at it again. And I came back in, and I said, what can you tell me about this artist? And he told me a few things about him. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me, because... In the 1880s, 90s, there was no abstract expressionist painting going on. And he said, that's not an abstract expressionist painting. I said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. And so he said, let's go look at it. So he went outside with me. And I looked at it, and I said, yeah, well, what is it? It's just an orange blob in the middle of two different stripes. He said, well, it's a landscape. I said, landscape, what is it called? What is it of? And he said, it's called Mount Rainier at sunrise. Now, Mount Rainier is in Seattle, where I live now. I had never been to Seattle. I had never heard of Mount Rainier. And therefore, I still couldn't see that this orange blob was, in fact, the night sky above, which was dark blue, and the sunrise just coming up in the far east over the entire continent of North America and going almost horizontal so that the, the foreground was dark blue, was the, was the dark of the earth, which had no light shining on it. But this mountain is so high, it's 14,000 feet, and it's all by itself, there's nothing near it. So it looks like the largest mountain in the world, just when you see it by itself. Uh, and it's covered with snow. So the orange light of the sun was shining on the snow and turning it orange. And it actually looks exactly like that in real life when you see it. But since I had never seen it, I couldn't organize my mind to identify what this blob of orange was. So that was the first encounter of knowing about Mount Rainier. And I said to the, to the uh, gallery owner, where is Mount Rainier? And he said, oh, it's out west. I think it's in Oregon. Close, but not correct. It's 80 miles south of Seattle and about... 70 miles north of the Oregon border. So I thought, well, that's a very interesting thing. I wonder what's so special about that mountain that I should stop. In any case, uh, I forgot all about it. And then eventually, uh, a few years later, I came up to Seattle to uh, do a, a seminar on breathing and the rebirthing uh, technique. And usually when I would get off a plane, when a plane would land, and I did a lot of flying around, I would feel my body shift 
to the new time zone if it was going east-west or just to a new location. It's like an inner GPS that my body had and it was unfamiliar. It was, as soon as the wheels touched the ground, I would feel a little fatigue. And sometimes I'd have to go straight to a class and teach right away, so I needed to process that yes. pretty quickly. Yes. So here we are landing in Seattle through the clouds on a foggy day. And the moment the wheels touched the ground, I woke up. I did not feel tired. I felt extremely energized. And it was so sudden and so uh, noticeable that, that I really was surprised. And I noticed that it, I kept that energy the whole time I was in Seattle, going through the seminar and walking around and so on. Uh, so uh, about two months later, I was going back to do the second part of this series of three workshops. And at the end of the uh, class, I had an extra day to explore Seattle, and I asked the uh, <laughs> I asked the students if there was anybody who was not doing anything the next day, would they like to drive with me around town? Because I didn't drive up and I didn't know my way around. And I liked it here, and I wanted to see whether you know what the, the rest of the city was like. Yes. <clears throat> so we drove and went around, and uh, I was I was actually driving uh, at that point. And uh, my guide, uh, we had finished looking at all the areas that looked right, and I was driving south on I five, which goes across uh, the gap between the ocean and Lake Washington. And so for, for about 30 seconds, I could see straight down the lake before if the road continued, I would go, be, uh, there would be a hill that would block that view. So I'm driving and gazing down the lake uh, and talking to her. And it was a blue cloudless sky, which the last time I hadn't seen because Seattle is famous for being rainy. Not really true, but sometimes it is. And uh, I saw... Uh, a very strange looking cloud at the far end of the lake. There's the only cloud in the sky. And it was, at the, it was low down at the far end of the lake. It was a big cloud. And I said to her, oh, what is that cloud down there at the bottom of the lake? She said, what cloud? And I said, look. And I said, I pointed through the windshield. And said, see the cloud? She said, it's not a cloud. I said, well, what is it? <laughs> she oh, said, it's the mountain. I said, what mountain? She said, Mount Rainier. And I was so startled that I nearly drove the car off the road. Or, uh, you know, I controlled it. But I said, Mount Rainier, what's it doing here? I thought it was in Oregon. Hmm. And she looked at me like I was an idiot. And she said, no, don't you realize I showed you Rainier Avenue, Rainier Tower, Rainier Beer, Rainier Bank? I said, oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> that had not registered on me that it was the same as the mountain. I was thinking of, uh, you know, the, the Prince of Monaco. So, who married who married Grace Kelly, right? Prince Ray, uh, Prince uh, Rainier. It's his family name. No, this was a mountain named Mount Rainier. And uh, so I said, "What's it doing here?" And then and then I looked at it for the first, last five seconds before it disappeared behind the mountain. And then I said something even stranger, which I couldn't figure out how did this come out of my mouth. I looked and I said to her, there's some enormous Indian sitting on top of that mountain. Wow. Which I could feel and almost see. It was not as big as the mountain, but it was a very large Indian 
older, older gentleman sitting up there. Anyway, so that's how I encountered Mount Rainier. <clears throat> and then I moved to Seattle because my, on my third visit, my body said, my body likes it here. Why not live here? I can do everything I need to do around the world. We have an airport here and so on. So I moved to Seattle and I'm still there. And a year later, I finally went down to the mountain. That's a long story. But what happened when I got up on the mountain, uh, besides the fact that the energy was extremely powerful there, and the moment I went into the park, I began to feel very grounded, as if there was a big chain going from my center straight to the center of the earth. And it was a very unusual feeling, but felt really good. I felt quite energized and strong and, and uh, healthy. I got up to the mountain, and uh, at a certain point, I ended up sitting in a meadow on a rock, which found by accident. I just didn't want to be where all the tourists were walking around. I wanted to find a quiet spot, so I parked and walked to this rock, or I walked into the meadow, and there was the rock hiding behind all the tall grass. This rock had exactly the same profile as the mountain. <laughs> so I said, that's strange. It's almost like being a witness of somebody else's experience when it happens. You know, it's, it's so strange that you can't imagine it's really happening to you. You think, well, I must be hallucinating. Yeah, that's why awareness is very important in our lives. We really have to be aware to yeah. what's going on around us, how we interact with other people, with the environment. Right. Um, and again, I'm, I'm a strong believer that we're going to get better at understanding ourselves if we are aware with, with in our interaction with everything around us. Well, that's why I say I'm a slow learner because it takes me several times before I really accept it. But once I accept it, I don't go back. So what happened up there on the mountain when in the 25 minutes or half an hour I was sitting looking at the mountain is that I was talking to the mountain or actually the mountain was talking to me because I didn't know okay. the mountain would hear me. And, and it was like a committee of voices, not just a single voice. It was like a whole chorus of voices saying, uh, the, this, was, this was in the early 80s, right? And the planet, I was saying the planet is, is going into a very critical, uh, dangerous zone as far as the environment is concerned. And it's important that people start to pay attention to that. So <clears throat> you should start talking about it in your workshops. And I said, my workshops have nothing to do with this topic. And they said, no, when you start talking about it, people will listen. And, and uh, I said, all right, well, I don't really know what to tell them. And they said, don't worry about that. So that's a very short version of the long conversation we had. I was very skeptical. I even tried to get out of it. I said, you know, I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm a musician. I'm a photographer. But, you know, this is... Talk to someone in the Sierra Club. <laughs> so throughout this process of <clears throat> putting the sacred landscape um, together, yeah, the chance to visit most or all the places um, you gather in the book. And did you feel anything special and at any other place like Uluru in Australia or in Japan? Yeah. Well, what happened was over the next couple of years, and I had actually studied a little bit of this before the whole history of sacred sites and like Stonehenge and the pyramids and all of these structures. Uh, also, uh, I, I was aware of this 
in China, the dragon lines, which are uh, a grid pattern across the countryside, and where these lines cross, they always build temples in ancient China. And uh, in England, they have the ley line system, which is not quite as like a chessboard. It's, 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 but you have straight line uh, series of churches that are all dedicated to the same saint, let's say St. George or St. Michael or whoever. Yes. But it goes for hundreds of miles in a time when there was no way to survey this except from the air. So how did they work all of that out? You see, so I knew that there was some stuff that modern science had lost. Maybe drones, you know. Yeah, yeah, many drones. Or at night, they, their inner, inner awareness would go do the measuring for them. And of course, the Egyptians knew more about the Earth's circumference than we do because they could build the pyramid in exactly an important spot and make that giant building uh, accurate to within less than an inch which a modern contractor building anything that side, even, even or smaller, even a house, cannot necessarily promise it's going to be exactly within an inch. The, the, I mean, the Egyptians or whoever helped them build the pyramids. Yeah, right. So uh, it more or less unfolded when I finally saw the mountain and had this experience. The next, uh, and, and of course, I've I'm pointing out the similarity between my experience of the painting and my experience of the cloud, right? That was, that was a signal saying, this is serious. This is not just your brain playing games with you. You saw the painting, didn't recognize it. You saw the cloud, didn't realize it was the mountain. So uh, about three weeks later after this experience, I was in London for the first time since, uh, since I had been in college. And, uh, uh, when I arrived, uh, I went and was staying with, with one of the people in the workshop on a houseboat in the river. And uh, the first thing she offered me was a cup of tea, which I said, yes, of course, I'm in London. I have to have a cup of tea immediately. <laughs> and uh, she had me sitting, talking to her while she was preparing the tea and looking across this houseboat. There's a long bookshelf along under the windows across the other side and I'm kind of reading the names of the books or just looking at them without reading them I was too far away and I suddenly saw a little card or like a postcard size it was a postcard actually and it was leaning up against the line of books and it was blue on the top <laughs> and dark on the bottom and in the middle was a mysterious red dot wow and I, I said, I wonder what that is. And I didn't even think back to the first experience. I knew it wasn't Mount Rainier because Mount Rainier is not red. It's white or orange when the sun hits it. And uh, so I got up and while talking to her, I walked across and picked it up and I looked at it and I still couldn't figure out what it was, even though I'm looking right at the postcard photograph. It wasn't a painting. So I turned it over and it was a card that had just come in that morning from her brother who was going across Australia. And it sent the card probably a week and a half before it finally got to her and she just put it on the bookshelf. And I said, how long have you had this? She said, it just came this morning. So once again, I didn't recognize what it was, but when I turned it over, it said Uluru, Ayers Rock, Central Australia. And so I saw that and then at the moment I saw it, I suddenly realized, I said, oh, I get it. 
it's not that I'm supposed to go around talking about people. I'm supposed to do a book. And this is the cover of the book. And that's the picture. Yeah. So I knew if I could just find out who the photographer was and get a hold of that picture, which took about two years, mm. the book would be completed, completed. And it took about eight years to complete because of going to all these places. I did not go to all of them. If I had tried to take the pictures myself, it would have taken 20 years. And it was too urgent a process, uh, an assignment. So it took about seven and a half years and was published. So I, I went to many of these places, but not all of them. And, and I, I chose the pictures that had the most uh, atmosphere to them that would take you to the place. You know, that some of them are very sharp. Some of them were taken by friends. And, and they're kind of amateur pictures, but still they have this presence to them. And so the, the book itself was its own best argument. Yes. And I got a lot of people to write and contribute a lot of very interesting essays of, about the places and I wrote everything else that uh, you know when I couldn't find someone else to write it I would write it yeah again I was quite impressed with the book and uh, I even read from it um, on my podcast the age of water and it mm. be uh, aired I think in uh, in a couple of uh, months uh, it's it's quite interesting um, going back to the people you interacted uh, with during your uh, lifetime. I mean, one name jumped at me, uh, Terence McKenna. And I know he was uh, an amazing mind, and also a um, proponent of using uh, plant medicine to enhance one's consciousness. Um, how was your interaction with, with Terence? <laughs> well, meeting Terence was a little bit like these same two experiences. I was at a conference in, in uh, San Francisco in 1984 or 83 so it was two years after starting to work on the book I was working on it but the book was still not done till 88 and uh, uh, I, I had worked with someone a woman named Marilyn Ferguson who wrote a book called the Aquarian Conspiracy and uh, I met through her uh, a lot of the people that were active in the transformational approach to civilization you know, not how has it been, but how could it be? And so these were all people who were futurists and yet very well grounded in traditions of the past. And uh, it was a four-day thing called the, uh, the Mad Scientists and Artists Party at somebody's big house in south of San Francisco. And uh, people could come and go as they pleased. You know, there was no plan it just it was open 24 hours a day for four days and somewhere around the second day um, there were lots of tables outside in the backyard and people were sitting around and I'm walking around and past the table and I heard this man speaking and he was odd-looking fellow he's very thin with wiry hair and you know, very unusual voice that had a certain magical hypnotic tone to it and everyone was listening to what he was saying so I stopped and I listened to what he was saying. And after five minutes, my brain said, who is this guy? Because I had never heard anybody speak like that with such a command of vocabulary and using words that you would only hear once in your lifetime, maybe being used by speaking in a speaking setting, you know, maybe in a book you'd read it. Uh, but he always used it exactly precisely in the right spot. It was the best word for what he was trying to say. So he was this phenomenon of improvisational speech, 
drawing from a vast background of his own personal study and life. So that's how I met Terence McKenna. And uh, we became very good friends and uh, he spoke at several seminars and workshops that I had put together as a guest speaker. And he was also uh, one of the secret faculty members of uh, a school that I was working on developing called Nomad University, the college of your choice. Terence was one of the first lecturers. Uh, and um, he lived in Hawaii most of the time at this point in his life. Uh, and he was, he had a plant uh, sanctuary, he called it. Mm -hmm. It was called Botanical Dimensions. <clears throat> and he would, he would uh, import uh, plants that had interesting aspects, you know, whether medicinal or mental, from around the world and see if, you know, Hawaii was neutral enough for most of them to grow. And they did. So he pointed out the ayahuasca vine back then in 1980, 84, 85, when I went over to Hawaii to visit him. And uh, he, he said, you can try it if you want. And I said, no, no, <laughs> I was not into that stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, little by little, um, it wasn't because of Terence, actually. It was just other things that were going on within this circle of friends. There was a very famous uh, chemist named Alexander Shulgin, who was a well-known professor at several universities in chemistry. And he was doing some very interesting research in transformation of mental states, trying to identify how to uh, either uh, make these, these uh, chemicals safe or how to, if they already were safe, how to fine tune them. So when you mean chemicals, um, what exactly? I mean, <clears throat> extracts from plants or something which Well, things from plants. As a chemist, he would do a chemical analysis of, of whatever, whether marijuana or ayahuasca or psilocybin. And uh, so he was looking at it from a chemical point of view and, and then trying to tweak it one, you know, component at a time. Uh, so that's, that's a whole other story, but you know, I had access to some of his experiments and I was not drawn to doing that, but being around and seeing what other people were doing, I became curious and at a certain point, I, I arrived at one meeting and someone offered me something that, that Shilgin had just synthesized <laughs> called MDMA. And, and uh, it came somewhere from nutmeg originally. And I said, well, I, I really, I really, uh, you know, this is a party and everybody's, you know, relaxing. And so when I, it's not my environment to try this out. And, and Marilyn Ferguson, I'm only mentioning the people that I know who have passed on, right? So it's safe to talk about them now, even if they, they were careful when they were alive, not to become notorious for these things. Um, Marilyn said, no, no, you should do this one this MDMA. And I said, well, okay. And she said, don't worry, just trust me. I said, okay. So I was given a tiny little capsule, very tiny little capsule with a white powder in it. I was just, you know, risking my life. And I, I swallowed the capsule and I waited for about 20 minutes. And then I noticed the kind of a rush that went through the body that lasted about two minutes and then it calmed down. 
And then I noticed that um, people were having very interesting conversations around me. And I realized that most of these people were on the same capsule. And there was no uncomfortable feeling at all. And yet the quality of the conversation was greatly enhanced. So that the significant, it was like, it was like, you know, everybody became like Terrence McKenna for a while. <laughs> it's nice. Which is good. And it worked for me too. I was coming up with some brilliant statements. I just was saying, wow, this is not so bad. And <clears throat> there was no after effect. No, no bad side to it at all. And so, you know, I was fine. And the next day there was a little bit of a, of a remaining thing and then it went back to normal. So I experimented with that for several times. Yeah, uh, I, I, went to, I went to certain places experimenting with MDMA and I found that it was very good. And, and I, I, I would see Shulgin at sometimes at these meetings and I got to know him well and I said, he had one other one that he produced called 2CB, 2-carbon benzene, whatever. I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it, the chemical name that he gave it was 2CB. And I, when I saw him after trying that, which was quite different from MDMA, which is what became ecstasy or street ecstasy, which is not quite the same as what he would put together himself. Um, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I think I'm going to nominate you for the Nobel Prize on these two things that you did. Uh, because, number one, they have no negative effects. They're non-toxic. They're not habit-forming. And as a matter of fact, they become irrelevant at a certain point because the insight stays with you permanently. It does not go away. So you don't have to reinforce it. And I've tested this in many ways and all of this will be included in the book about how some people will take it only once and it changed their entire life and they never felt like they needed to take it again. Some remarkable changes in people. <clears throat> yes, oh. I agree with, with that approach and you know some people are um, quite concerned that the plant medicine like ayahuasca or you know mushrooms can, can become addictive but <clears throat> this is not the, the case. As you said, you can take it once and then you can take it again, maybe next year or in two years mm -hmm. from now, based on you know, how you, you feel. And when you take an addictive uh, drug like cocaine or marijuana or whatever, um, you reach a level from which you have to enhance the intake uh, in order to get the same um, yeah. <clears throat> feeling, the same, let's say, bliss. But with plant medicine, you pretty much you take it from the level you were before and you go to the next with no other effects on your body. Again, it's no side effects. And I can attest that for, on, on my own. So again, it's, you can take it or you don't take it. There's no difference. Well, the difference is that it's a learning, it's a learning uh, tool. And, and uh, then what you learn, you remember. And, and you can actually recreate it. And as a matter of fact, I learned that I could sit with a group of people I had just met. And, uh, and, and if we got onto this subject, I could talk about it. And they would say, well, you know, regardless of their background, they'd say, well, I, I don't know, where can I get some? And I said, well, you don't have to get some. I can give it to you. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I found that if I 
focus in on it, I can recreate the experience. And uh, they said, well, what's that like? And I said, well, let's do it. So just they're sitting around the, in the room and I said, okay. And I just focused my mind on it for a few minutes until I was sort of there. And then I said, how are you feeling? And they were all suddenly, I interrupted them. <laughs> they were feeling so such interesting energy shifts, which were not physical, but in awareness that they didn't even know that this was the effect I was talking about. So I said, how are you feeling? And they said, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, things are, are looking just exactly like they look. I'm not hallucinating. I said, I know, but how are you feeling? And so then they began to realize that, oh yeah, I sort of forgot about everything you were saying and I forgot about time and I forgot about space. I just was in the moment of appreciating everything I was looking at in a new way. And so uh, I said to Shogun, I said, what, what MDMA or ecstasy in his, in his uh, uh, formulation of it, uh, what it does is it takes things which are quite abstract and intellectual and I discovered this for myself the first time I took it because on the table at the house that I was in was a book of photographs, black and white photographs of Greek temples, which are as abstract a concept as you can look at. They're geom geometric poetry, but with no words, just with symmetry and certain sacred proportions. And I was looking at this and I was very moved by these photographs. It wasn't just curiosity. It was a sense of beauty, a sense of emotional richness in these photographs of these stone geometric structures, which I had never felt before. So I said, what it does is it opens up the heart of the mind. And DMA will take what normally was just geometry and will give it uh, a voice. Yeah, we, we go deeper inside and deeper in... in outside also when when we look outside i mean i in my experience i look at um a branch of a tree in a very different way um and it was quite impressive it was vivid it was um exuding life okay when i i look through the eyes of <clears throat> increased uh consciousness and mm -hmm. i think this is what people have to understand that when using plant medicine at least in, in my opinion, and in fact, I heard other people saying the same thing, we can access the remaining 90% of our uh, brain. We open up new channels, new windows, through mm -hmm. which we can see the world in, in a different perspective, more than three-dimensional. is the, the feeling, as you just mentioned, is the feeling added as, a, as an additional dimension to, to what we perceive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, but to, to say opens up the heart of the mind was something that I never would have thought of before. In other words, there's the heart and there's the mind. Yes. They have different functions. But then the mind also has, has a, uh, a setting which we don't really notice until something comes and opens the window. And then once you see it, you never forget it. And it's always there. And then the other substance that he worked on, which I wanted to make sure was part of the Nobel Prize application, uh, was the 2CB. He, I said, what, where did you 
come up with this? And he said, well, I was looking for something that would be the balance to MDMA and that would be more physical rather than just perceptive and mental. And uh, I said, well, I, I, I can tell you that you achieved it. For, and I told them my experiences with 2CB, which was, is, is, is very few people I think have ever heard of it or know have ever experienced it because it's highly unstable. This colorless liquid would be unstable. Sometimes it worked and sometimes nothing happened. Uh, but I'd say two times out of three when I got it directly from the source, it worked. And uh, I only did, was able to experiment with that maybe six or seven times. And that was sufficient. And I've never missed it except to tell people about it. And the same with MDMA. I haven't tried MDMA for 25, 30 years. It's, it's not necessary. It's there. But it, it, it caused you to have these sort of metaphysical insights into your states, of your emotional states. And uh, it was like uh, LSD, in a way, with um, a gear shift and brakes. Hmm. You, know, you could drive through the LSD world, and the moment you wanted to stop it, you just put your foot on the brakes, and everything goes back to normal. So that so that the uh, the drug is not running you, you're running the drug, yeah. and and I said and I said and it's also equally uh, not habit forming and equally reproducible once you've done it, and it allows you to embody all the things that you've learned. So for example, I studied Tai Chi for nine years with my teacher, and I thought I had learned just a little sliver of what he knew. Uh, and I felt like, well, he says it's okay for me to teach, but I'm not even sure I really know what I'm doing. When I did, when I had the 2CB, I said, well, let me see how this feels when I do Tai Chi. You know, something that was like a neutral measurement that was, I could test any environment by doing Tai Chi on top of a mountain or in a, in a basement room or whatever, and I could read what was around me. And so I started doing the Tai Chi form, and suddenly I felt my teacher inside my body moving me Interesting. through the form. I mean, he has long since passed away, but I had never had that experience. And so I said, oh, I think I did really learn something from him. So it was like he was giving me authorization <clears throat> to transmit what he had passed on to me, and just to, to characterize him for a moment, I would say that one of the first things he said to us in the beginning, and he never learned English, he always spoke in Chinese with an interpreter. He said, I cannot teach you Tai Chi. That was the first thing in the class, I can't teach you Tai Chi. So we thought, what are we doing here? And then he said, uh, all I can do is make it as easy as possible for you to steal it from me. And that's how we learned from him. And I think that was a very wise statement that he made. Very but then, you know, in the, with the study of the, of the Japanese and Indian music, which I had completed in college, that, mean I, that didn't mean I knew much. I knew a tiny fraction of what my teachers were trying to show me. But uh, at one of these gatherings, uh, of this, this tribe of people, you know, from all over the world who would show up once or twice a year for this one of these gatherings, these parties. Um, one of them took place in my house in Seattle, 
and I had, uh, I was, everybody was busy with, with whatever they were busy with. And I went down into a room where there was nobody there, but I had my tambura, the Indian musical instrument with four strings. It's just a drone instrument. And I said, let me see how it feels to just sing a raga in here, the, you know, the way I barely know how to do. So I started singing quietly and closed my eyes and being kept going. And when I stopped singing, I opened my eyes and everybody was in the room. And they had come in and they did not leave and they didn't make a sound. And nobody said, we're going to be quiet. They just went right into exactly the way the audience would be at his concerts. And there was never any applause at any of his concerts. People just got up and went out, even though there was no rule saying no applause. Wow. So I said, okay, I did learn something from him. So it, it embodied the abstract, it became part of your, you know, your nervous system. So to me, it looks like throughout your life, you had your own you know, spiritual guides showing you around and you know um, guiding you yeah. on this path and you knock doors or walls but in the end you f you found the, the way out through the labyrinth and that's that's amazing yeah and 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 so actually at this point uh, it's sort of integrated itself in in ways where i've experimented with a lot of things and i find that uh, the less you worry and the less you try to control the more naturally everything comes into place, which was the opposite of the way I started out in the middle of New York City. You know, you've got to take charge and otherwise nothing's going to work out. So I, it's, it's a sense of, uh, of I, don't, I haven't ever driven a Tesla or any of the electric cars, but I know they're very quiet. <laughs> and it's a sense of going through life in a very quiet vehicle without effort. And the Tai Chi is, is a way of studying that. And the Indian music was a way of studying that. And all of the Western music that I studied was all a way of getting out of the way of the music. Not playing the music, letting the music play you. Yeah, so you've been also surrounded by sound, vibration, frequency, energy, which is part of who you are, yeah. we are. And um, it's can also, um, have a definite impact on, on one's life. Yeah, and, and as a result of this process that I found myself being guided through <clears throat> by some entities, I have still don't know who they are and where they're from, and I can't call them up. I, I have friends who can talk to their spirit teachers. It doesn't work quite like that for me, but uh, in my own way, it, I, I trust that They'll show up, and I just have to pay attention all the time. It's the meditation, you know, you're trying to focus your attention. What I, what I do in meditation, having played with Zen and, and Tibetan yoga and, and tantric practices and everything, is I think the simplest thing, there's so many things to think about that, you know, so many different techniques. What's the best technique? And I said, well, for me, it's just pay attention to everything all the time. That's one thing that you just do. And, and things emerge. When, when something attracts your attention, don't ignore it. Stop. Go in. Ask questions about it. And, you know, what's that picture in the window? 
Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, your friends who <clears throat> talk to, you know, invisible entities. A couple of days ago, I uh, posted another short video um, titled, uh, Do You um, Use Your Social uh, Spiritual Committees? So again, I was encouraging people to tap into that invisible force, which is out mm -hmm. there for each of us, and ask for help, no matter the, um, yeah. the situation. And sooner rather than later, they will start getting answers. Yeah, yeah. And, and see, children know this until we tell them, no, that's not real, that imaginary friend of yours. Exactly. So, so uh, as a subcategory to Nomad University, the people getting to it were coming to these unusual classes with unusual teachers like Terrence McKenna. Um, they would say, wow, if I had known that education could be like that in school, when I was in elementary school, it would have been great. Do you have a program for children? And I said, that's an interesting idea. Let me see what I can figure out about it. I mean, it was the parents who were asking me the question about their own kids. And uh, so the, 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 there's a design for that, and it's been experimented with in, in different groups around the world. And then each group finds a, a different format of the way of putting these principles together. But the, the, uh, the school for the adult students, anyone who can sign themselves up, that's, that's when you know enough about yourself so that you can go and enroll for something like this without your parents saying, I'm enrolling you in this thing. And then you're, you join the adult world. But kids don't have control over that up to a certain point. They, some kids earlier, some kids later. So um, it has to be a different approach for the kids. And, and it's basically, instead of calling it Nomad University, which is abbreviated by the students into Nomad U, right? so they play on the letters and then think that that's mm -hmm. cool. And it is. Um, the children's uh, courses are called Kidding You. Mm -hmm. And then the subtitle is A School for People Young Enough to Know Better. Yes, these are programs which we all need uh, moving yeah. forward, especially in these, you know, trying times where um, online yep. is the only way to communicate and, and learn. Um, and I really hope you're going to be able to, to bring all these um, courses online uh, very soon and make them available all over the world. Yeah, now that the internet exists, when I started Nomad, there was no internet, so we had to do it the old way. But now uh, it will be easy to spread it, make it available very quickly. Yeah. So that is part of the plan for this, this year. Now, we're, we're in a very critical time. The Chinese used to have a curse saying they live in interesting times because the Chinese wanted stability. They just wanted 4,000 years, it just almost didn't change at all and worked however well it worked. But then industrial, um, the Industrial Revolution came and everything began to speed up. And so now here we are. And you and I are talking right in the midst of the beginning of this uh, coronavirus uh, world uh, dilemma. Right? And uh, so this is the first thing that I ever see in my life, including whatever wars went on, that actually stopped the whole planet. 
Yes. So it's not it's not accidental. The timing is not accidental. There's there's some benefits to come out of this in addition to all of the costs, uh, and we'll recognize it when it shows up. But I think that it is going to, uh, shall we say, interfere with the old models of how life has to be structured and how uh, people have to earn their living. So, uh, you know, there are some people that will continue going to work and, and even after this is over or whatever happens, they'll continue having a job. But eventually more and more people will be working from home and the robots will be doing everything that we used to do. And we have to be very careful not to get the robots to be a little too eager to imitate us because they can now. And, and uh, you don't want to become part of the robot world. You want the robot world to stay part of the human world. So this is our challenge that's coming up now. Yes, and I'll be all for in that if the additional time we'll have by, let's say, working from home or staying home, um, will be used for you know personal development, um, meditation, introspection, things which can really uh, make our lives uh, better. Uh, because otherwise, if we just binge on a TV series, that's not a good way of uh, using our our time. Yeah, and you know, uh, in terms of the spiritual question, uh, there was one time there where I was flying up and down from. Seattle to Los Angeles uh, to work with Marilyn Ferguson and her friends. Um, uh, I was I was feeling sort of uh, strange about everything, and I was thinking, well, maybe I should just stop all of this and just go into a monastery somewhere, hmm. even though I had never been a quote religious person. I was, you know, just neutral to everyone on that and thought I, I could learn from all these different traditions. Um, but then the, the, the Mount Rainier voices came back right there in the airplane after several years, I was still working on the book. And the moment I said that, the committee spoke right through the, through the window of the jet plane. They're watching. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it said, it said, I said, your, your, your robes, are what you're wearing now. Hmm. <laughs> so I said, okay, no monastery for me. I'm already in it, <laughs> paying attention to everything all the time. I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> uh, Too late. Frederick, we are approaching the end of the interview and I want to ask you a challenging question. Now that we established in the fact that there is no risk in um, becoming addictive to um, plant medicine. Do you think that should be mandatory for all the world leaders, you know, politicians to go through one or two sessions of, you know, mother ayahuasca or mushrooms or anything else which can open up their minds, their hearts to the betterment of people? Well, I don't think they should have to because uh, some of them are psychopathic enough as it is, and it might just make them worse, we don't know, but it might actually bring them and snap them out of it. Uh, and the fact is that for thousands of years, uh, leaders of tribes and leaders of nations did do this. Yes. 
I mean, we're, we're just rediscovering something which has been very well known in China and even in the Amazon for thousands of years. And, and you know, just in terms of plants, uh, it's only the native tribes that have had no contact with, with modern culture, the few that still exist, who actually can walk through the forest, the, the, the Amazon jungle, and identify thousands of plants and they know exactly what they're for, for medicine. I mean, they, they have complete, everything that you need is right there. And um, so there are people now who are beginning to try to you know, connect those worlds. That's the thing to do. And so we have to, we have to go back and learn from those traditions because the indigenous cultures have never lost that knowledge. A lot of them have been eliminated, but, but the ones that are still going, uh, everything I'm saying is, is obvious to them. Yes, but I'm afraid that in two or three generations, maybe four, um, all this knowledge, I mean, the elders uh, will disappear. And I don't know if they had the, the time to pass on that knowledge or if they found the right people within the tribe. Um, but it's, it's sad that this type of knowledge um, right. is being lost. But there are now new organizations that are aware of that and representing them, uh, you know, like Pachamama Foundation and so on, who understand that uh, our future, uh, to a certain extent, is, needs, absolutely needs, this dimension connected back into it. Uh, Otherwise, we'll, we'll uh, science ourselves into, you know, smithereens. <laughs> yes. You know, there has, to be, there has to be an organic factor to, to uh, life on this planet. Yeah. Frederick, I would like to close uh, this interview by um, quoting from um, the back cover of your book. The survival of modern civilization hinges on the reintegration of the earth laws into our private and public lives. The earth is wise and whispers to us in a language of feelings. A sacred place is one where the earth voice can be heard more clearly. Go to these places and listen. Eric, thank you very much for uh, your time thank today. You. And I really enjoyed the interview and I'm sure our uh, viewers will, uh, will do that uh, as well. Until next time. Love and gratitude from, from my side. Let me know when it's ready so I can listen to it myself. <laughs> and, you know, because sometimes uh, when I'm speaking, I know what I said. But when I hear it back, then I can learn to say it even better. So this is, this is very valuable for me to have answered your questions as best as I can with no preparation. That's, that's, I, I recommend it to everybody. Do not plan what you're going to say. Thank you, Frederick. All the best. Okay, thank you.